Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our June 2011 issue. Let's get started. Our lead article this month reports on the phenomenon of self-harm and its close relationship to completed suicide, especially in older individuals. The authors point out that empirical research of self-harm in older age is scarce and that there are no studies confined to first-ever episodes in older age. This situation prompted the authors to examine the clinical characteristics and risk of repetition relative to first-ever self-harm in older age. They used data gathered over a 10-year period as part of the Manchester Self-Harm Project, a prospective cohort study in northwest England. This study included individuals presenting with self-harm at emergency departments of three large hospitals. The authors described the characteristics of older patients versus middle-aged patients presenting with a first episode of self-harm. They further examined potential risk factors for repetition using regression analyses. Almost 400 older patients, or more than half of all older people presenting with self-harm, and almost 2,000 middle-aged patients presented with a first episode of self-harm. The circumstances at the time of self-harm suggested a higher suicidal intent in the older group. The rate of repetition in older age was lower, but repetition was more often fatal among the older group. The most important predictor of repetition of self-harm in older age was physical health problems, which, interestingly, had absolutely no predictive value in the middle-aged group. Psychiatric characteristics, surprisingly, had little impact on the risk of repetition in older age. The findings of this study highlight the need for age-specific interventions beyond the scope of psychiatric care alone. We now go to a randomized control trial of adjunctive levetiracetam in outpatients with dsm 4 bipolar disorder who are experiencing a major depressive episode. Bipolar disorder is a severe chronic illness that exerts a crippling personal and financial toll on the individual, the family, and wider society. Studies in the last decade have established that the main burden of illness in bipolar disorder is in the depressive phase. There are few currently validated treatments for patients experiencing a depressive episode in the context of bipolar disorder. Contrary to widespread assumptions, the largest study to date indicated that antidepressants combined with mood stabilizers did not show superior efficacy in comparison to placebo. There is an urgent need for effective treatment. Levetiracetam, a novel anti-epileptic drug, may have unique brain activity in regions widely implicated in bipolar disorder. It previously exerted an antidepressant effect in an animal model and in an open-label study in bipolar patients. The researchers in this current randomized trial chose a six-week placebo-controlled trial design in which patients were flexibly dosed with up to 2,000 500 milligrams of levetiracetam per day. Among the 32 patients included in the analysis, 
No significant difference was found between drug and placebo for change from baseline to week six on the Hamilton Depression rating scale, nor any secondary outcome measures. The research team concluded that adjunctive levetiracetam was not superior to placebo for short-term treatment of bipolar subjects in the midst of a depressive episode. Next, we have a study of clozapine in association with metabolic syndrome, which is an important and well-known side effect of clozapine therapy. It has been hypothesized that weight gain contributes to the development of metabolic syndrome, but a direct diabetes-producing effect of clozapine has also been suggested. The authors of our next article conducted an eight-year retrospective cohort study to determine whether there was an association between weight gain and metabolic parameters among schizophrenic patients taking clozapine. The study combined a cross-sectional survey of metabolic syndrome and retrospective chart review. The study subjects were schizophrenic inpatients who began treatment with clozapine and had subsequent monthly body weight monitoring. Body measurements and biochemical measurements were performed to determine the presence of metabolic syndrome. Chart reviews were conducted to obtain information such as gender, age at initiation of clozapine, baseline body mass index, or BMI, changes in BMI after initiation of clozapine, treatment duration, and concomitant psychotropic medication. Close to 200 patients were maintained on clozapine for a mean of about 60 months. The prevalence of metabolic syndrome was over 28%. Regression analysis showed that baseline BMI and change in BMI after clozapine treatment were significant factors for metabolic syndrome and for four metabolic parameters. For clozapine-treated patients, metabolic syndrome and most metabolic parameters were related to weight gain. However, glucose dysregulation was associated with treatment duration, independent of weight gain. These results indicate not only the importance of monitoring body weight, but also that periodic monitoring of blood sugar may be required for clozapine patients who have no significant weight gain. In the June issue, we have two very important reports from Trevedian colleagues who have developed new assessment and monitoring tools in the battle against suicidality. Psychometric evaluations were conducted on these new tools in the context of a study among 240 adult outpatients with non-psychotic major depressive disorder who were treated with an SSRI in an eight-week open-label trial. The first report points out that monitoring of suicidal risk following initiation of antidepressant treatment is an essential component of clinical care, but that very few brief, reliable rating tools for suicide ideation and behavior in adults are available. A useful tool should be able to monitor suicide-related factors to identify suicidal ideation and related symptoms and be used as a repeated measure to detect changes over time. To this end, the authors developed the Concise Health Risk Tracking Scale in two versions, 
a self-report, and a clinician rating. The results showed that both versions have excellent psychometric properties with good internal consistency and consistent factor structure. These scales can be easily administered in as little as one to two minutes to monitor suicidal risk in clinical practice and research settings. To discover whether either scale will predict suicide attempts or completions in actual practice would require a very large prospective study sample. The second report relates to monitoring of negative symptoms associated with the initiation of antidepressant medications. Since there is currently no brief, reliable rating instrument for assessing treatment-emergent negative symptoms, the authors developed and evaluated two versions of the concise associated symptom tracking scale, the clinician rating and the self-rating. These brief tools are designed to measure the five symptom domains often referred to as the activation syndrome. Irritability, anxiety, mania, insomnia, and panic. Results showed high reliability of both versions and a good discriminant and concurrent validity. Both versions appear easy to implement in clinical practice. Most clinicians would naturally embrace any new tool to help with monitoring and assessing suicidality. Thus, I direct you, our listeners, to go to psychiatrist.com to get all the details on these important new scales. The authors of our next article, which is one of our CME offerings for this month, sought to identify risk factors for developing alcohol use disorders among patients with schizophrenia. Alcohol is the substance, aside from nicotine, that is most often abused by individuals with schizophrenia. Patients with comorbid schizophrenia and alcohol use disorder tend to be more severely ill, more violent, and hospitalized more often. Identifying schizophrenic patients who are likely to develop an alcohol use disorder would help clinicians focus their treatments. However, the risk factors for developing alcohol use disorder after onset of schizophrenia are not well understood. With the aim of better defining the risk factors, Jones and colleagues reviewed data for more than 12,000 Swedish people diagnosed with schizophrenia from 1973 through 2004. The authors tested the associations between individual, parental, and sociodemographic risk factors and the development of alcohol use disorders. They found that about 1 in 15 patients with schizophrenia later developed an alcohol use disorder. Furthermore, among the risk factors studied, previous violent offenses, low amount of education, and alcohol use disorder in the patient's father independently increased the risk of developing an alcohol use disorder. Fortunately, these risk factors can be identified at the first presentation of schizophrenia. This knowledge could improve treatment of individuals with a higher risk of developing alcohol use disorder. The topic of our second CME article calls to mind two popular reality television shows dealing with hoarding, Hoarding, Buried Alive, and Hoarders. 
These programs reflect our collective fascination with a seemingly harmless phenomenon that can cause real suffering. Indeed, it has been proposed that a hoarding disorder be included in the forthcoming fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Although professional opinion is divided as to whether hoarding warrants a discrete category in the DSM-5. Using a cross-sectional survey, Timpano and colleagues sought to discover the point prevalence of hoarding disorder as defined by the proposed DSM-5 criteria and a German version of the hoarding rating scale. About 2,500 adults who were representative of the German population participated in the survey. The researchers found a current population estimate of almost 6%. Hoarding prevalence did not differ between men and women. Not surprisingly, hoarders were significantly more likely to buy items, acquire free things, and steal items they did not need as compared to non-hoarders. In addition, the traits of perfectionism, indecision, and procrastination were all uniquely and significantly associated with hoarding. Although the authors concluded that hoarding is a highly prevalent syndrome, they cautioned that their prevalence estimates may be high, due in part to the fact that the proposed DSM-5 criteria are not fully available. Next, we are reminded that the cost of health care is outpacing inflation and that, as a result, payers of health care are facing pressure to limit spending. Although prescription drugs represent only 10% of total health care spending, the rapid growth in drug spending, especially for mental health drugs, has attracted attention. Atypical antipsychotics in particular have been frequent targets for cost containment. Policy interventions have attempted to manage spending for antipsychotics, often with detrimental impact on patient care. This study examined a Florida Medicaid policy change in July 2005 that reclassified olanzapine as non-preferred. The change applied to both new and existing users without grandfathering existing olanzapine users. The authors evaluated whether the Florida Medicaid policy change affected existing olanzapine use as intended and whether changes in medication use were associated with unintended increases in use of medical services among individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The authors compared prescription patterns, health care utilization, and Medicaid payments between patients using olanzapine on the policy change date and a control sample from Florida Medicaid in the year before the change. Parallel analyses were performed for the New Jersey Medicaid program, in which access to olanzapine remained constant. In the Florida program, there were significant increases from 2004 to 2005 in six-month rates of switching from olanzapine, hospitalization, and emergency room visits. In contrast, these items remained stable for the same period in New Jersey. During the six months following the policy change in Florida Medicaid, the increase in payments for medical services largely offset the reduction in payments for olanzapine. The authors conclude that their findings support grandfathering of existing users of antipsychotic drugs that are removed from the preferred drug list. 
Now we substantially change course and examine the use of homeopathy in psychiatry. The use of complementary and alternative medicine to treat psychiatric problems is widespread and there is a need for more high-quality controlled trials. To make the most of the data we do have, Jonathan Davidson and his colleagues took on the task of systematically reviewing the placebo-controlled randomized trials of homeopathy for treatment of psychiatric conditions. They identified 25 placebo-controlled trials in the areas of anxiety, sleep, and circadian rhythm disturbances, PMS, traumatic brain injury, ADHD, and somatic syndromes like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Six of these studies were judged to be of high quality, nine of fair quality, and ten were poor quality. Homeopathy was found to have efficacy versus placebo in five of the six somatic syndrome studies. Effect sizes for pain and fatigue were comparable to the effect sizes that have been reported for SSRIs in fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. No evidence of efficacy of homeopathy was found in anxiety disorders, and for the other disorders, the results were mixed. The findings did indicate good tolerability of homeopathic treatments, although safety data were incomplete in some cases. Let us go now to a study that examined whether the ratio of triglycerides to HDL cholesterol can be used as a better surrogate than other conventional lipid measures to predict insulin resistance and LDL particle size in non-diabetic schizophrenia patients. Individuals with schizophrenia have mortality rates approximately twice that of the general population. Cardiovascular disease is responsible for as much as half of this excess mortality associated with schizophrenia. One source of elevated cardiovascular risk in these patients is metabolic syndrome. Clinical trials of antipsychotic agents have reported development of insulin resistance, adverse changes in lipid parameters, and cardiometabolic adverse events in some patients. The authors conducted a cross-sectional study of over 200 adult outpatients who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder and were receiving olanzapine, risperidone, or typical antipsychotics. Fasting blood samples were obtained to determine levels of glucose, insulin, lipids, and lipid particle size. Results showed significant correlations between lipid measures and the homeostasis model for assessing insulin resistance. However, regression analysis suggested that the ratio of triglycerides to HDL cholesterol is in fact a stronger predictor of insulin resistance and LDL particle size than other conventional lipid measures. Individuals with a higher triglyceride to HDL ratio and men were more likely to have small LDL particle size. The authors conclude that this simple, readily available, and inexpensive measure can be a very useful surrogate to identify non-diabetic schizophrenia patients with insulin resistance and small LDL particle size. In our next report of a double-blind, randomized controlled trial, the authors recount their evaluation of the acute efficacy of extended-release divalproex sodium as compared to placebo 
in patients with bipolar 1 or 2 depression. 54 adult outpatients with bipolar 1 or 2 disorder who had not previously been treated with mood stabilizers and who were experiencing a major depressive episode were randomly assigned to Divalproex sodium or placebo for six weeks. The primary outcome measure was mean change from baseline on the Montgomery Asperg depression rating scale. Secondary outcomes included such items as rate of response and remission and change in anxiety symptoms. Divalproex treatment produced statistically significant improvement in the primary outcome measure compared with placebo from week three onward. Almost 40% of the Divalproex group met response criteria compared to 11% in the placebo group. About 23% of the Divalproex group attained remission compared to 11% for the placebo group. Subgroup analysis revealed no real differences between Divalproex and placebo for those with bipolar 2 disorder. The findings of this study indicate that Divalproex sodium shows efficacy and is reasonably well tolerated in patients with bipolar depression who have not previously used mood stabilizers. In particular, the benefit is shown in those with rapid cycling type 1 bipolar presentations. Our next article notes that Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and other Pacific Islanders are vastly underrepresented in research pertaining to trauma and its aftereffects. The authors aim to study whether there are ethno-racial disparities among these groups in terms of sexual trauma and any ensuing effects on health and functioning. They examined data on unwanted sexual experiences using a Hawaii Department of Health database, which provided them a community-based sample of over 12,000 adults, whom they grouped into three ethno-racial categories, white, Asian American, and Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islanders. Additional data included variables for demographics, health lifestyles, chronic disease and disability, and quality of life. The Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander group had a higher 12-month prevalence and lower lifetime prevalence for unwanted sexual experience compared to whites. Asian Americans had lower 12-month and lifetime prevalences. Sexual assault was highly associated with adverse health effects across all ethno-racial groups, but there were no ethno-racial disparities in self-reported health effects for those with a lifetime history of sexual assault. This study revealed significant ethno-racial differences between these groups regarding sexual assault, with the risk differing by time period. These findings could represent early stages of a new trend in local assaultive behaviors towards Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders. Our next study from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs examines antidepressant non-adherence among 395 veterans treated in VA primary care clinics. Treatment non-response and side effects were the rule rather than the exception in this sample of depressed veterans. The vast majority of non-adherence problems resulted from patients' ongoing negative experience with antidepressants. Collectively, 
The results confirm the importance of frequently and proactively monitoring adherence and side effects, especially in a population of middle-aged and elderly men with poor physical health. The most common type of non-adherence was discontinuation, followed by not taking medication as prescribed and never taking medication. For patients who discontinued their antidepressant, the most common reason given was the medication was not helping. Results of pharmacotherapy among adherent patients were poor. Among those who were adherent, less than 20% responded to treatment by six months, and less than 30% responded by 12 months. Side effects were reported by over 80% of the veterans and were commonly reported as the reason for discontinuation of medication. Interviews supported the findings that side effects and generally not feeling like oneself are important barriers to adherence. Although Veterans Affairs primary care patients with depression report a preference for pharmacotherapy compared to psychotherapy, telephone intervention by care providers did improve adherence in this group. The authors advise clinicians to encourage depressed male veterans to engage in evidence-based psychotherapies as an alternative or adjunct to pharmacotherapy. We have an outstanding collection of articles this month on topics considered somewhat controversial in the realm of childhood and adolescent psychiatry. I urge you to visit Psychiatrist.com to get details and answers on these topics. The first article covers a subject of recent great interest, that of problematic Internet use among adolescents. Internet use is a decidedly popular and core activity among adolescents. Unfortunately, more and more youth who are preoccupied with Internet use are experiencing mental disorders like depression. Research has noted that excessive Internet use may lead to decreased communication with family and depressed mood. The nature of this relationship between problematic Internet use and mood symptomatology remains poorly understood. Thus, the authors conducted a cross-sectional survey among 3,500 students in a Connecticut high school to explore the prevalence and health correlates of problematic Internet use. They assessed demographic data, characteristics of Internet use, health measures, and risk behaviors. Results showed a prevalence of about 4% for problematic Internet use. Boys spent significantly more time on the Internet, and they more frequently missed important school or social activities as a result. Girls more often self-reported excessive Internet use. After adjustment for sociodemographic factors, problematic Internet use was significantly associated with substance use, depression, and aggression, with similar patterns of associations between genders. These results represent an effort to begin understanding this phenomenon among U.S. high school students and raise questions that warrant further research. These authors suggest that problematic Internet use be considered for possible future inclusion in the DSM. The next article in our childhood and adolescent grouping is a study whether persistent manic symptoms in youth over a fairly short interval might increase the probability of pediatric 
bipolar spectrum disorder. Although little work has been done to explore prodromal symptoms in bipolar spectrum disorder, the work that has been done has spotlighted symptoms of mania as a possible indicator of early stages of illness. The authors assess data from screening and baseline assessments from an ongoing prospective longitudinal study of nearly 700 youth aged 6 to 12 years. Parent report was used to assess the youth for elevated symptoms of mania at both assessment points. The youth were classified according to their rating at both assessments. For example, youth were classified as having persistent positive elevated symptoms of mania if their scores were positive at both assessment points. The researchers found that using two administrations of the assessment tool spaced over a relatively brief interval significantly improved the prediction of bipolar spectrum disorder as compared to using only the first administration. They found that youth with persistent positive symptoms of mania were significantly more likely to have a bipolar spectrum disorder. Those who had persistently negative symptoms had a substantially decreased probability of bipolar spectrum disorder. The authors conclude that obtaining repeated parent report of mania symptoms may be a useful adjunct to careful clinical evaluation. Future waves of data from this longitudinal study will be crucial for devising clinically useful methods for identifying or ruling out pediatric bipolar spectrum disorder. A drug that is proven to be effective in treating pediatric bipolar disorder, Tourette syndrome, pervasive developmental disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder is ziprazidone, a second-generation antipsychotic. The drug performs much better than others in its class at minimizing weight gain and metabolic complications. However, ziprazidone has the potential to prolong the heart rate-corrected QT interval, or QTC. Significant prolongation of QTC is generally considered a risk factor for torsades de pointe, ventricular fibrillation, and sudden death. But the authors question whether QTC prolongation should be considered as a single predictor for this risk. The authors studied 29 adolescent patients who were receiving ziprazidone. All patients had normal electrocardiograms and no serious medical illness at baseline. Electrocardiograms were used to measure QTC duration and dispersion. 24% of patients developed electrocardiogram abnormalities. The baseline to peak QTC duration increased significantly. However, the increase in QTC dispersion was not significant. QTC duration and dispersion changes were not correlated with ziprazidone dose or plasma levels. The authors conclude that cardiac risk for ziprazidone is low, and they question the need for electrocardiogram monitoring for youth receiving ziprazidone who have normal baseline electrocardiograms. How much extracurricular education is too much? Parents want to give their children every advantage, every opportunity to succeed in a competitive world. When, though, do our expectations of our young children do more harm than good? 
The authors of this last article in our pediatric grouping examine the time devoted to extracurricular education among a group of nearly 800 Korean first graders. Primary caregivers completed a questionnaire on demographic characteristics and amount of time their children spent in extracurricular education. These adults were also given a screen for possible mental health problems in their children. In the context of this study, extracurricular education was defined as educational activities out of school, including specialized test preparation programs, private tutoring, extended day schools, and online programs. More often than not, these activities involved cram school a for-profit program specializing in intensive test preparation. Topics usually included English language fluency, math, writing skills, and the sciences. These first graders spent an average of about two hours each day in extracurricular education. Significant positive correlations were found between the amount of time spent in extracurricular education and hyperactivity, aggression, conduct problems, and depression. First graders who spent more than four hours per day in extracurricular education had a three-fold increase in depressive symptoms compared to those with less tutoring per day. The authors recommend that clinicians inquire about extracurricular education as part of mental health screening. These findings also have relevance for educational policy. The ASCP Corner for June focuses our attention on a topic the authors feel is widely overlooked, the adverse effects of drugs with anticholinergic properties. The authors begin by citing a recent study which reported that nearly half of nursing home patients who were prescribed cholinesterase inhibitors for dementia were also taking medications with anticholinergic activity. The classic signs of anticholinergic toxicity include tachycardia, flushing, lack of sweating, dilated pupils, urinary retention, agitation, and delirium. However, in the elderly and in those with mental illness, the neuropsychiatric anticholinergic effects are more likely to be seen. These patient groups are especially susceptible because they may already have cognitive deficits or reduced cognitive reserve due to comorbid conditions. Anticholinergic activity has repeatedly been linked to poor outcomes in both the elderly and in those with mental illness. Although serum anticholinergic activity can be measured, testing is not possible clinically. The authors therefore advise physicians to rely on established ratings like the anticholinergic drug scale, which rates drugs according to their degree of anticholinergic activity. By choosing an antihistamine, a urinary incontinence agent, an antipsychotic, or an antidepressant with limited anticholinergic activity, clinicians can prevent or reduce untoward neuropsychiatric effects in already cognitively susceptible populations. That's all for the June articles, but as always, there's much, much more in the June issue. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find a free online CME activity for the two CME articles we've covered here, as well as other interactive activities from our CME Institute. And we always have valuable letters and book reviews. 
Please join us online for all these pieces and for more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.